The reading this morning is from Matthew 5 and can be found on page 968 in the Bibles. We're starting from verse 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. God? Oh, oh, yeah, I believe in God. Do you have a problem with that? No, 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 Jeremy, that's all right. I try not to bash people about my faith. I just try and fit in and try and love people. That's what it's about. So, Jeremy, you mean you really are a Christian? You believe in the Bible and Jesus and all that stuff? Yeah. Why are you so surprised? Well, Jeremy, I guess if I'm going to be very honest, and I don't mean to be hurtful, I wouldn't have pegged you as a Christian. You don't really look like a Christian. And what I mean by that is you just look like everyone else. 
like us. You don't seem to be any different. In fact, if I was to be honest with you, Jeremy, you're not like the other Christians that I know. The ones I know, there's always something quite different about them. I wonder if you've ever heard a conversation play out like that. I haven't had it in terms of my own experience. People say that to me, thankfully. But I have had it in talking about people who've gone to the church I've gone to when I've mentioned them. Oh, they go to your church. I would never have guessed that. We come to a really important series in my mind as Senior Minister for all of us here at St Matthews. It's going to be a journey through the Sermon on the Mount. And there's a really important question that this whole series answers. What does a Christian actually look like? And it's a really important question to think through. What are we meant to be like? And if someone came and said to me, oh, you're a Christian, would they be surprised? Or would they go, actually, that makes sense of what I've observed about you. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' most famous section of teaching that we're going to go through starting today and for 10 weeks. And we're going to take our time to try and go through and really listen to what he has to say. And it's not a long section of teaching. It's the longest of his in the Gospels. It's 2,400 words, roughly. It's short. You can go home, and I would encourage you to do this, go home and read it, and every week actually read through the whole lot and let it soak in. It's memorable. It's pithy. The memory of this piece of writing and speaking from 2,000 years ago, the echoes of it are still in our language today. We have phrases such as the golden rule or turn the other cheek or build your house on the rock. They all come from the Sermon on the Mount. But these famous sayings are in themselves not why the Sermon on the Mount is so important. It's important because we're confronted with what Jesus says, this is what a disciple looks like. It's the kingdom calling us to come and live for the king. And as you go through this, there's a whole range of topics we're going to look at. But if you're going to sum up in one word what Jesus' message is to us here today at St Matthew's and as a church is, he would say, I want you to be different. When we come to Matthew chapter 5, which is where this starts in Matthew's gospel, he's been out preaching the gospel. He's been announcing that the kingdom of heaven is drawn near. He's been calling people to repent. And in front of him are those who have turned around and said, I want to follow you. They've repented. They've said, I'm with you, Jesus. And he sits them down to instruct them about what that means. And it's worth saying, it is a very challenging section of the Bible. Probably one of the most comprehensive and challenging sections that you can go through. But what is most challenging is not any one section, though you will find, I'm sure, different pieces very challenging for you. 
I think the most challenging thing is that we're confronted with the Lord Jesus and his authority himself. Throughout the entire sermon, Jesus contrasts two ways of listening, two ways of living, two ways of acting and responding in this world. There basically is the world's way, whether it be secular or religious, and then you have Jesus' way. And as we start the series this term, I want to ask a very important question. As a follower of Jesus, if that's who you are today, if you're not yet at that point, then just listen in because this is what Jesus' instructions are for followers. Are you willing to listen to what Jesus will say to you this term? And let me say, the question is as true for you as it is for me. (laughs) I've been grappling with it myself. Will I listen to what he actually is going to say to me? And not just listen, but will I do it? Will I practice it? I want to give a both introduction to the whole Sermon on the Mount today as well as a reflection on the first part of the Sermon on the Mount that we had read to us, the Beatitudes. And there's two key things. What we see here in the Sermon on the Mount is a vision for what I'm calling an upside-down world, the kingdom of heaven. And it is coming into this world, but it turns our lives on its head. And it calls us to live as upside-down people. Let's think firstly about the upside-down world of the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's no doubt in times in life where you feel like your whole world has been turned upside-down. Often it can be a crisis. And if you're going through that today, I'm very sorry to hear that. We'd love to pray for you afterwards. Do come and grab us. But I wonder if you've ever heard of the house that is a tourist attraction in South Africa. It's called the Upside Down House. That is a real photo. (laughs) It has not been photoshopped. The Upside Down House seemingly defies gravity by remaining completely stable even though it's been flipped onto the roof thanks to masterful design and construction. And if you walk inside, you'll be even more perplexed because the interior is completely upside down. So that's a photo that's been flipped. They're actually walking on the ceiling because that's the floor. (laughs) Now, such is the intrigue of this upside down house, and it's become kind of an Instagram, you know, worthy spot to go to, as well as a tourist attraction. They've taken off in England, and here's another one. (laughs) I love that guy lying on the ceiling, which is the floor. And people take all sorts of photos to kind of play off on it. It's just this incredible experience where everything is flipped on its head. And the deep challenge of the Sermon on the Mount is that everything that our world thinks is flipped on its head. Let me read to you a quote from G.K. Chesterton. He's a famous Christian apologist from last century. And he said this about the Sermon on the Mount. On first reading the Sermon on the Mount, you feel that it turns everything upside down. But the second time you read it, you discover that it turns everything right side up. The first time you read it, you feel that it's impossible. The second time you feel that nothing else is possible. Let's have a think a bit further about this upside down world. First thing to note is, it's all about the kingdom of heaven and the values that the kingdom of heaven brings to this world. 
That's worth saying. Matthew records the language as kingdom of heaven. If you're in Mark or Luke or John, it's kingdom of God. They're the same thing. And when you read through the Sermon on the Mount, he refers to the kingdom at the middle, at the beginning, sorry, in the beginning, the middle, and the end. Um, the Sermon on the Mount starts these ways. If you've got your Bibles there, I'd love you to open them up. I'm not going to have the uh, verses on the screen. We're at Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 to start with. It's on page 968 of the Bibles under the seats in front of you. And let me read to you from Matthew 5, verse 1 and 2. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him. And he began to teach them. And so these are all the ones who've responded to the gospel. And he's now teaching them. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When you get to the end of the Beatitudes, it's repeated. The kingdom of heaven also belongs to the persecuted. When you get to the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, you've got the Lord's Prayer. And what does he teach us to pray? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. When he talks about money, what does he say? Don't love God, love money. Don't be anxious as you think about that, but rather seek first, what? His kingdom and his righteousness. And then when you get to the end, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but only those who do the will of my Father who's in heaven. And so it's this overarching idea that kind of frames the whole message, the kingdom of heaven. And what he's describing is life inside the kingdom that he wants lived out in this world. Now the kingdom has already arrived in the world because the king has come. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Sermon on the Mount is key to understanding what does it mean to live in God's kingdom now. And what we'll see is it's all about a different way of living in this world. One of the things that struck me as I've read through this, and I really would encourage you to read the whole thing through, week by week, and just let the whole message soak in. Two observations. Numbers of times you'll say this. You've heard it said. You've heard it said. You've heard it said. And then he will say, but I say to you. And what he's saying is there is a wisdom that's in the world. Well, don't listen to it. It's wrong. I'm going to tell you the right, right way to respond. I'll give you one example. Matthew 5.38, which we'll come to in two weeks' time. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek as well. It's completely, completely counterintuitive. And all through the Sermon on the Mount, he is saying, there is one way that you might have learned, actually, this is how I want you to live. One of the phrases that struck me was, he keeps saying, do not. And it brought back memories of being a parent with three young children. <laughs> We have stopped doing that, we have stopped doing that, we have stopped, and I'm sure all the parents can relate to this. Do you know 19 times through the Sermon on the Mount, in these three chapters, he says, do not. Now, he's not an angry parent. <laughs> he's our loving saviour who is wanting to instruct us about how to live. Do not break your oath. 
do not be like religious hypocrites. Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Do not store up riches here on earth. Do not judge people. And the list goes on and on and on. 19 times. He is turning our understanding of life in the world upside down. The kingdom of heaven is Jesus' rule on earth. In his coming to earth, heaven has drawn near. Which leads me to my second point, because in this upside down world, he wants us to be upside down people. Who bring the values and the understanding of the kingdom to bear in our daily life. Let's think a bit closer about the Bible reading, the Beatitudes, which are the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. And in many ways, these beautiful poetic description is really a kind of all-encompassing view of the character of a disciple. And there's three things that struck me as I read through these eight verses from three to ten. The first thing is this, is that we are blessed people. And I think it's very important to note this at the start. Because sometimes people have looked at the Sermon on the Mount and go, this is impossible that you could live this way. In fact, Martin Luther, the great reformer, said that. And he said, really, it's to drive you to the mercy of God. But I take it Jesus actually wants us to live this way. And we'll see next week that he says our righteousness is to surpass that of the Pharisees. And there's a key phrase that's repeated eight times to disciples. And he says, blessed are. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are you, because if you are persecuted for my name. What does it mean to be blessed? Um, it's a, in the original language, it's an interesting word. And if you look at different translations, you'll see that it's a word that's not the easiest one to translate because there's all sorts of different ways it gets translated. In other words, it's not self-obvious. Some have said um, it means to be happy. And there is a beautiful nature to that. I think Jesus does, at one level, want us to be happy. <laughs> he wants to bless us. But happiness is so much dependent on circumstances, isn't it? You can be happy, but you can also be sad. And depending on the circumstances you're in, you might move from one to the other. And I take it what's being referred to here is beyond circumstantial happiness. This blessing. It's not dependent on what's happening around us. And I think it means more like this. He is saying, you will have the blessed life. You will have the good life. Almost the envied life. It's very positive. And why have we got the blessed life? Well, it's interesting. The blessing that is mentioned at the start and the end of the Beatitudes is because you've got the kingdom of heaven. You have the keys to the kingdom. You belong to the kingdom. You're part of the kingdom and you have all the blessings of the kingdom. Now, no doubt... We are not receiving the full blessings of the kingdom until Jesus returns. But that is not to say we don't experience them in part now. We do. 
Have a look at what it says. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. We have that kingdom now. Blessed are you who mourn, for you will be comforted. We actually will experience a comfort from God in this world. Blessed are the meek. Why? Because we're going to inherit the earth. One day we'll be part of the new creation. It will all be ours. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You will be filled. You will be satisfied. And I take it that is not just a future experience. There is a satisfaction that we know now. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I have a contentment in life through him. Blessed are the merciful, but they will be shown mercy. And we experience God's mercy through the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And we may not see him face to face like we one day will, but we absolutely see the resurrected Lord Jesus by faith now. And we know he is ours. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And that's whom we are. Now, why do I emphasize this? The Sermon on the Mount calls us to radically change how we live. And the emphasis is not just on what you think, it's on what you do. It's on practicing what he says to us. And I take it it is possible because of the blessing we experience from him in this world. That is real. We have a real strength and a real love and a real blessing upon our life from God which gives us strength to live in a way that is supernaturally possible naturally not possible supernaturally possible to actually love your enemies to actually turn the other cheek to actually not store up riches in this world we actually can because of the blessings of God upon our life disciples are blessed people but they're also different people. And you think about those descriptions. It's worth noting we are not to be different by degree, but kind. Let me give an illustration from a colour wheel. Um, those in fashion will be very familiar with these or art. Um, the opposites actually go together. If you're ever wondering with fashion, my wife taught me this. <laughs> But you see, being a Christian is not like being yellow to orange next to each other on the colour wheel. It's actually being like purple. If you're blue, the world is orange. Do you see what I'm saying? There should be a complete difference about the way that we respond and live such that people ask us, why do you live with such hope? Why do you live the way you do? That's what Peter says to the church in 1 Peter chapter 3. And you think about this, this description of a disciple. Poor in spirit. Not proud. Not self-made. It's interesting, it's one of the ways people will bag out people who become Christians. Oh, they were at a point of weakness. God was a crutch for them. Jesus says, amen. They finally worked out they're poor. <laughs> 
and they found me. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit, who work out that you need God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. It's interesting, these descriptions here are pretty much taken from Old Testament descriptions of the godly in the Old Testament. You'll see it in the Psalms, you'll see it in the Prophets. Isaiah 61 is a classic one that speaks of those who are poor in spirit, who mourn, and they mourn the state of broken Jerusalem and the failings of God's people. And when it's talking about people mourning, it's that sense of which we weep over the world that it does not know Christ. And there is a sadness to us. They are meek people. They don't assert themselves. But rather they trust in God for their influence. You see, Christians are not people who are pushy. We're actually happy to be pushed around to some extent. And that's very difficult. But we actually pray and believe God is sovereign. And he will make a way. We are meek. We trust in God for our influence. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. You see, that is our passion. That is our heart. Not to acquire more is what we're going to see in chapter 6. But we actually want to store up riches in heaven. And our passion is for the kingdom to come in this world and to see people come into it and for people to live for the king. That is what drives us. And there's a purity of heart about us and a mercy. And in this sex-crazy world where purity is deemed to be odd and weird, because that is how people think of people who don't want to have sex outside of marriage. Actually, we go, no, I'm content in Christ. I want to live a pure life that honours him and I want to make sure marriage is reserved for God's purposes. And they're peacemakers. They actually bring people together. And we could look in more detail, I'll let you do that in your small groups, but what you see here at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount is this beautiful portrait of the characteristics of followers of Jesus. And if you sum it up in one word, it's we're different. The third thing is we're opposed. And it's interesting, not once but twice he actually speaks of the blessedness of this reality. Blessed are those who are persecuted, verse 10, because of righteousness. In other words, because they're living for the king. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, or falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, the Lord Jesus. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way the persecuted the prophets before you. I think of Andrew Thorborn, great will be your reward in heaven because of all the things they said about him. He did not react, he turned the other cheek which is what I most loved about his response in the media. And sadly today, in my 36 years of living as a Christian, I can't remember a time like we're currently living in when Christians have been so opposed for their faith. It's not true of all parts of society. 
but it is true of some. And sadly, the Andrew Thorburn case that's been in the media is not the only case. You're probably aware that there's been a bill for religious freedom in the country, and I've met with Zali Stegall a couple of times. And look, we've had some very gracious talks, and she's been very kind in terms of giving me time to listen. And there's been a document put together by a kind of combined Christian group to highlight the need for religious um, freedom in the country. And it's really quite shocking when you start reading the stories and the document just has story after story after story of real people in real time here in the country who are persecuted because of their faith. Here's one that I know some people at St Matthews know, Mark Allaby. Uh, Mark was in the news a number of years ago. He was a senior executive of PwC, one of the big four professional service companies. Several years back, he was targeted by LGBTQ activists in New South Wales because he was also on the board of the Australian Christian Lobby Group. Now, whatever you may think of them, I have no problems being someone being a part of them. It's an organisation that holds orthodox Christian views on marriage and gender. The activists lobbied PwC to force him to resign from the board of the Australian Christian Lobby. The activists objected to the idea that Mark would be able to hold a position on the ACL board while at the same time working at PwC. You think, really? What was stunning was that PwC did not defend Mark against the attack. He felt it was impossible for him to continue working at PwC with such visible and vitriolic attacks and stay on the Australian Christian Lobby board. He ended up leaving PwC and he went to IBM. And similar things happened because he was on another Christian board that held orthodox views on gender and marriage. And what would Jesus say to Mark Allenby? Stay strong. Turn the other cheek. Be a peacemaker. But don't hold back. Keep standing for me. Because great will be your reward in heaven. And friends, we live in an age where if we are to live differently, at certain points there will be conflict as we stand for the Lord Jesus. And Jesus' word of promise to us is, you will be greatly rewarded. Maybe not in this life, but absolutely in the life to come. And one of the most encouraging things about this sermon is is as you go through it, he just drops in these little things. Actually, you're going to be rewarded greatly if you do this. My favourite one, I hadn't seen it before until I started reading it again. It's interesting, Deborah Benstead said the same thing. It's in this passage for next week. He talks about how if you practice what I say to you, you'll become great in the kingdom. And I thought, what a great thing to aspire to, to be great in the kingdom. It's Monday morning, and it's not Jeremy and Matt that are at the water cooler, it's yourself. And you're with your friends, and you're having a coffee, and you're talking about the weekend, and someone says to you, what did you do? And you bravely say, actually, I went to church. I'm a Christian. 
What sort of response do you think you'd get? Friends, I pray that when people meet us, they meet people who've been so transformed by Jesus' love, by his grace, by his mercy. They meet people who are so blessed by being part of the kingdom that they look at us and go, yeah, I can see that. Actually, I'd like to find out more because you've got something that I haven't got. Will you listen to Jesus as we go through this series? And importantly, will you do what he says? That's the challenge for all of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this teaching. It's wonderful, it's uplifting, it's challenging all at the same time. As we hear the King of Kings address us as his children and instruct us on how to live. Speak to us, Father, through these beautiful, powerful, confronting words. Each day as we read it, each Bible study as we discuss it, each Sunday as we come to hear it being proclaimed, and each day as we read it at home. And I pray, transform us into people who will be living vessels of your mercy and grace, shining your light and love in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.